Thanks, Patrick, for reading Scripture. Thank you, Soren, for that missions moment. It's very fitting for where we're going to be at today. The church is persecuted, hey? And it's persecuted still today. 260 million Christians living in places where there's persecution. That's a phenomenal number. I don't know, phenomenal. That's a overwhelming number. I don't know the right adjective to put to that, but it does set you back a little bit, doesn't it, to think of that. Let's open with a word of prayer. And um, Ron, thanks for leading in worship as well. Um, and thank you, um, Becky, for playing the organ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time. Thank you for each one that's here. Father, as we look into your word, would you help me to proclaim your word uh, clearly and uh, confidently? And um, may it be a blessing to your people. May it edify May it edify your body, Father. May it build us up. And uh, as we look into your word, Father, would you remind us of things that we've known for a long time and teach us things that we otherwise have not known or could not know, apart from your word proclaiming it, apart from your word declaring it, apart from your word, we just there's things we could not know, Father. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church body that we get to be a part of and uh, just the joy that we've had together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 4, 23-31, those very verses that Patrick has read for us. You know, when I get up here and different people read on Sundays, i got to stop and remember, wait a second, who just read? I don't know why that is. It would be easy to remember that Patrick just read for us. The title of this message is The Church of Victorious, Part 3. Next week, we'll have a different title. Um. But it starts in verse 23 with just that simple statement, when they had been released. And I thought it would be helpful just to consider where they had been released from and why it is they're being released. They were in jail overnight. You remember that? Because Peter and John are going to walk into the temple in the ninth hour and they see a man that was born lame in his feet. He's never walked before and he's begging alms of Peter and John. And Peter and John, Peter says... Uh, look at us. They stare at him intently and the guy gives Peter and John his attention like he's going to get some alms from them and Peter says to him, "Uh, silver and gold I do not have, but what I give, what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Get up and walk. And he puts his hand out and that man puts his hand in Peter's hand and he stands up. He doesn't just stand up. He leaps up and then he walks into the temple through that beautiful gate and I see that as a picture of salvation myself. He walks into the temple through that beautiful gate and he's leaping and praising God and it causes such a commotion because people recognize him as that guy, right? And so they're telling other people that maybe don't recognize him, hey, this guy has been lame for 40 years. He was over 40 years. He was born this way. And it creates such a commotion. People are all excited about what's going on and they come up to Peter and John and Peter recognizes they think it was us that did this and I need to fix that. And what does he say? He says, hey, listen, it's not by our power that we've done this, but it's in the name of Jesus that this man has been made whole. By the power of his name, he has been given this healing. And so that that launches Peter into a a sermon, and people are, are in tune with that sermon, and some of the people that are in tune with that sermon are the leaders of the Jews, right? The Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, and the chief priests, and the and the." Uh, captain of the temple guard whose job it is to keep the peace and so they get a little bit annoyed at this because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection as Peter is proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead and so they come up and confront Peter and John and in that confrontation they decide we're going to arrest you we're going to put you in jail overnight and tomorrow morning we're going to put you before the Sanhedrin right the Jewish high court we're going to bring you before them and we're going to question you about this that you've been teaching we don't we don't like it we don't like what you've been teaching so they do that and the next morning and it seems as if the man that had been healed or given this newness of life in his feet is there with them as well because peter says to them he's standing right here before you and 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 he doesn't back down he he preaches the gospel to them right and he lets them know their responsibility for crucifying their messiah they don't like that either and they notice this confidence in Peter and John, and they understand that they were uneducated and untrained men. In other words, they didn't go to the best theological colleges. They didn't have any of that training, but they were proclaiming truth so authoritatively they didn't know what to think about that. And the people 
recognize this great healing was the real deal, and so they have nothing left to do but to release them. And that brings us up to where we're at today. They've been released. When they had been released, they went to their own companions, it says. Now, I want to ask you a question that I'm going to... It's a simple question. It's not a complicated question. I'm going to come back to the question, revisit that question at the close of the message. And the question is this. Where do you go when you've had a bad day? Where do you go when you've had a bad day? That's my question. Okay, the church victorious through persecution is our focus. The purifying effects of persecution. I was talking with Patrick about the last few messages that we've had from the book of Acts, and he's helped me kind of think through this section of Scripture a little bit. And this is actually his his uh, focus on this section of Scripture. I had something kind of similar, but not quite. And I think this is this is very fitting, the purifying effects of persecution. We know that Luke has written this book of Acts to the lover of God. The lover of God. This man named Theophilus. That's what his name means. And it's a very fitting name because we, as lovers of God, can look at this book and there's, there's wonderful things we see in this same book, right? It's almost written to any believer. And it's really an account about the formation of the church or the establishment of the church. The whole book of Acts is really that, an account about the formation of the church. The progress of the church and the persistence of the enemy against the church continually comes to the forefront. That's why I've had us considering um, our, our highlight verse for the last couple of weeks. Josh, would you bring that up? which is Matthew uh, 16, verse 18, in which Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I wanted to just bring our attention to, the, to what's inferred in there is that there are two combatants, but one victorious. And in the book of Acts, we see that played out, the progress of the church, but the persistence, the persistence of the enemy. And so the last couple of weeks, two weeks ago, we had uh, the church is victorious when it knows its purpose. And the proclamation of the gospel is central to the purpose of the church, isn't it? The proclamation of the gospel is central to the purpose of the church. That was kind of where we focused. And then last week, um, the church is victorious because of the very presence of God, the continual presence of the Holy Spirit. The church is victorious because of that. If God is for us, who can stand against, right? If God is for us, if He's, if while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, how will He not also give us all things? Right? That was kind of the point of that message. In today's text, it seems what Luke would want Theophilus to know is that even though persecution came, the church was victorious through it. And it continued to grow not only in numbers, but in depth of insight. And that's kind of the Obviously, it's grown in numbers because Luke records the numbers. He says, and 3,000 were added. And then after this preaching that, that lands Peter and John in jail, and I think the crippled man, is, or the formerly crippled man in jail, after this preaching, there's about 5,000 men that are a part of the church. And that, so I think there had 3,000 total in number plus 120, and then now there's 5,000 men. So maybe, I don't know, with women and young people, maybe there's 15,000, maybe more, maybe the 20,000 believers that is dynamic growth right it's unheard of it's unheard of today in our culture in our society we 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 pray that we would see our our loved ones get saved and different people we communicate with and 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 we are earnestly seeking god with regard to that and you know if we see one per of course there's more rejoicing in heaven over one who gets saved right one than a thousand righteous persons who need no salvation. But we rejoice in that, and we ought to. But here is this dynamic growth of the church, right? The church is just exploding in growth. But, but again, Luke would want Theophilus to know that even though persecution came, the church was victorious, not just in growth in numbers, but in depth of insight, in their understanding of spiritual things, in their understanding of Scripture. 
They're, they have an increase in heavenly perspectives. That's what they find themselves having, an increase, a gain in heavenly perspectives. They're realizing, in a lot of ways, some things for the very first time. I, I see the book of Acts as a book of firsts. There's a whole bunch of firsts in the book of Acts. It's not a book of lasts. In fact, it even concludes with Paul still ministering. It just concludes kind of Paul still there ministering. It's a book of just constant firsts. So today, the church victorious, even through persecution, the perfecting effects of persecution or the purifying effects of persecution is what I want us to look at. If you're a note taker, those three things are on the back of your prayer page. Three purifying effects of persecution. One of the purifying effects of persecution is that it unites it unites the church. It unites the church. The man in that video was just testifying to that. He, he was just saying that is the case. There's persecution that we don't experience, that type of persecution here. And it is, in a lot of ways, uniting and growing and building the church. So one of the purifying effects of persecution is just that. It unites the church. Verses 23 and the first part of verse 24. I'll just read them again. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. We'll get to what they say in a minute here. But we can see that the desire of the rulers was to stop the spread of the gospel in verse 17 of the same chapter. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them not to speak any longer to any man in this name. They don't even want them bringing up the name of Jesus, right? Don't If they could have had the cameras that other countries have now and that are monitoring Christians, they would have put them up. They don't want Peter and John even saying the name of Jesus. Their desire is to stop the spread of the gospel. And the desire of Satan is to do the very same thing, to, dis, to disrupt the growth and unity of the church through persecution. In fact, Jesus said to those who were opposed to him, uh, back in John 8, 44, you don't need to turn there, but he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you desire to do his will. So the enemies of Christ, the, the, the people that are against the gospel and against Jesus, they desire to do Satan's will. They are tools of Satan to disrupt the growth and unity of the church through persecution. But one of the purifying effects of persecution is it unites the church. It unites the church. And Theophilus was to see, and we are to see, the effects of this persecution is an increasing unity. Peter and John, and I think this man spent a night in jail, and then a day is spent standing before the authorities. There's intimidation. There's a bit of an inquisition, and they're questioning. There's an increasing uh, level of threat that they put on them. And then they are released out of, out of fear of the people because the people are glorifying God for this miracle. And what's the first thing Peter and John do in verse 23? They reunite with the church. They reunite with the church. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Whether this is reuniting with the 120 or a smaller group or a bigger group of over 5,000 now, it's hard to tell. I kind of think it's the, big, the broader group in the context. I think that would flesh itself out. But they, they reunite with the church. And I call this unity in practice. The purifying effects of persecution are unity, and I would call this unity in practice. In the letter to the Hebrews, uh, the writer says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Just meeting together, just this, I was thinking about this this morning, even without this message being on my mind, of what a joy. I think I heard someone say a very similar thing, and I thought, yeah, my spirit's right in tune with that individual. I can't remember who it was. Probably glad for that, right? But the point is, it is an encouragement just to come in here and meet together, isn't it? 
and to hear what God has been doing in, in different people's lives throughout the week and to, and to have Becky come and, and, and play the organ and let us know how Charles is doing and to hear how Carla's uh, surgery went. It is just a joy to meet together and hear what's going on up in Pollock, Idaho. And, 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 this, and to have Julie here again this morning, it's just a joy to meet together. It's an encouragement to one another, isn't it? This is unity in practice. They are released, and the first thing they do is they go and gather together with the church. And apart from the Holy Spirit, and apart from the truths that Peter and John have come to know, maybe there'd be a reason for them to give up meeting together. We have these threats hanging over us. The authorities don't like us. They don't want us talking about Jesus. I kind of think this this formerly crippled man goes to this prayer meeting with them. This new believer is there with them. What a thought, eh? Apart from the Holy Spirit, that wouldn't be the case. That man doesn't care what the authorities think with regard to, you know, don't meet together, don't speak in this name. They need to be together. Again, apart from the truths they've come to know, there maybe would be a reason to give up meeting together, but they know whom they have believed in. I'm making that a point to the point where I'm going to say it again. They know whom they have believed in, not what. They know who it is they have believed in. And so they're confident the best place for them to be is among other believers. The church reunited becomes the church united and in even a greater way than they were before. The church regathered after this first difficult night and day, first among what's going to be many difficult nights and days, this reunion causes the church to be united in even a greater way than they were before. And in this text, in, in all that Patrick read for us, and even what is to follow, even in what is to follow, this idea of unity in practice, this unit, unity is the focus of the text here. There is a focus on the unity of the church. And, it, and this is an increasing unity. It's one that has purifying, it is rather a unity that is purified through this persecution. So there's unity in practice in this in, in what we read this morning. There's unity in praise, unity in prayer, and unity in purpose. We're not going to touch on all of them right now, but you can just see it just naturally as you read through there. They're not giving up meeting together. And there's there's purity in that, isn't there? There's there's purity in that, not giving up meeting together. Okay, there's also a unity of interest. They report all that the that they were that was said, right? They reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They didn't hold anything back. And all the others are attentive to know all that they have to report. It just came up yesterday in a conversation. Cindy, I should have let you know I was going to talk about this. Um, sometimes you have a dream you like to tell someone. Some people don't like hearing <laughs> dreams, right? They'd rather not, don't tell me about your dream. I don't want to hear it. If you can bring it down to one minute, I'll listen to it. Other than that, it's just a crazy dream. I don't care to hear about that, right? And that's understandable. But here, it would be not understandable if they didn't want to know everything that happened. And they're attentive to all that Peter and John are going to tell them. They have a unity of interest. They have a, a singular focus. They, they want to know what happened. And Peter and John want to tell them all that happened. They're not disinterested. There's a mutual concern. There's a unity of interest. There's not an individualistic mindset, but a corporate view of the events that have taken place. It's not like, oh, you're telling us these things, but you know what? I've got other things that are more important for me to be thinking about right now, and I really can't take time to listen to what you have to say. They are totally engaged. This is a unity of interest. And this happens among believers today, right? I mean, we, we pray for people that we've never met because we hear another brother or sister talk about them, and we feel connected and 
this happens today. There's a unity of interest. It's a pretty special thing in the body of Christ. It doesn't happen really outside the body of Christ the way it does within the body of Christ, this unity of interest. You might have unity of interest around some kind of a sport, right? If you're a Packer fan or a Lion fan or a golf fan or a shooting fan, you might have a unity of interest there, but not to this level. So there's unity in practice, there's a unity of interest, and there's also a unity of joy. Verse 24, when they had heard this, they lifted their voices to God. Upon the report given, they lift up their voices in praise in one accord. There's this unity of joy. You know, I don't need to tell you there's an emphasis on the importance and the value of unity within the church that's found in so many places in the Bible, you can't go very far without bumping into it, right? The value of unity. The importance of unity. And I thought, I wouldn't have to give an example, but if you'd let me just share one, Jesus, well, you have to let me, you're sitting there, right? <laughs> Unless you're going to get up and walk out. In Jesus, in chapter 17, it's his high priestly prayer, that's what it's called. And he prays for himself, and he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all who would believe in him through their word. And when I hear him pray that, when I read him praying that, I think, that's me. I, I can find myself in Scripture. I believed in Christ through the word that the apostles put down in the New I came to faith in Christ in that way. And then he says this, John, in John 17, 23, he's praying for those of us who would come to faith in Christ through the, the apostles' word, right? And he says that they may be perfected in unity. That's his desire, that the church, believers, would be perfected in unity. And persecution has that purifying effect or that perfecting effect. It perfects in unity. I mean, no one's going to be arguing about the color of the carpet, right? Or this or that when there's way bigger things to be concerned about. Way more important things to be thinking about. No one's going to get involved with those kind of tuffles when, when, when there's so much more to be focused on. He, not only does he say that they may be perfected in unity, he goes on to say, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Man, oh man, is that wonderful stuff, eh? So that the world may know that you sent me. When the church is unified, it preaches something to the world. It preaches the love of Christ to the world when the church is unified and persecution has a purifying effect. And one of the purifying effect is it has, it is this. It unites the church. So there, there's a unity in practice, a unity of interest, there's a unity of joy. James says in James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. He doesn't say if. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of faith produces something. It produces something positive. So one of the purifying and perfecting effects of persecution is unity. There's unity in practice, unity of interest, a unity of joy. And right between, right between uh, two words in verse 24, I see something that just sticks out to me, and I don't know how exactly, this is the best I can do with this. Uh, look at it in verse 24. And when they had heard this, comma, and I recognize this is an added word, so when they had heard, comma, they lifted their voices to God. The report of the intimidation and the threats and what took place, and I'm sure Peter and John shared with them what they expressed back to the rulers and the leaders and the Sadducees, right? 
And when the body of believers heard this, it moves them to praise. It just bubbles up out of them. It moves them in a powerful way. What they heard caused them to erupt into praise together. This unity of praise. There's pressure and there's persecution. And that's something you might think should pour cold water on the church. Or, or douse or put out their enthusiasm. Instead, it sparked something in them. That's why I say they're gaining this joy of heavenly perspectives. This is persecution coming from without. And, and, and while these attacks on the church are coming from outside the church, and it has this purifying effect of uni uniting the church, in a couple of weeks we're going to see that there's a satanic attack that is started from within the church. And you, if you've read Acts at all, you probably know what's coming. There's a satanic attack that has started from within the church and their response to it, we'll have to look at that. And we'll see that Satan changes his tactics. But the point I want to make with that is, by way of application, there are still two combatants. And yes, one is victorious, but the battles rage on. The battles rage on. Persecution purifies unity because it cuts through the clutter. A second perfecting or purifying effect of persecution is this. It ignites the church. I think it's safe to say, I think you'd say, this is not a cold or a lukewarm church that's pictured here, right? This is a church on fire. These sparks that have been ignited are being fanned into flames. Verse 24 through 28. Let's, let's just read them again. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise, a futile, devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. To, to occur. To occur. Predestined to occur. A second perfecting or purifying effect of persecution is this. It ignites the church. You can notice in those verses that I just read and hopefully you looked at, you can notice what they rejoiced in and what they're able to recognize. What they rejoiced in and what they're able to recognize. They rejoice in God and His rule. They recognize His hand in history. History is His story. And they see how their very lives are connected to His story. And that puts a fire in them. That just sets them on fire. Jesus says to the lukewarm church in Revelation, the church at Laodicea, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. That does not describe this church. This lukewarm church in Revelation, this idea of lukewarm water, lukewarm, stinky, or tepid water that's good for nothing, Jesus basically says it makes him sick. It makes him sick. Lukewarm church, lukewarm Christians makes Jesus sick. The, the church at Laodicea didn't know it stood in need. It thinks it's spiritually rich because of the temporal riches it's enjoying. That's the church at Laodicea. But there's nothing like that about this church in Acts. There's nothing like that about them. They are on fire. And they're rejoicing in the truth. Persecution has this perfecting effect on the church. It ignites the church. It's been said of this church, and I don't know who it's original with, so I don't know who to give credit to, but never have so few done so much with so little. 
15 to 20,000 new believers. They've got no money, the church. They've got no programs. They've got no buildings. They've got no official recognition by any government. They've even been told by Jesus in advance, back in Luke 12, the other Gospels, it's spoken of there. Jesus says to them, when you come before the authorities and the synagogue rulers, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't even think about it because in the very hour, I'm going to give you what it is you need to say. So not only do they have no money, no programs, no buildings, no official recognition by any government, they have no preparation either. The book of Acts is a book of first. They've got no preparation. It's, it's not like they sit down the day before and think, okay, this is what we're going to do. No preparation. Now, I better not come into the pulpit with no preparation, right? I'm not suggesting that for a minute. In fact, Paul says to Timothy, study yourself to show yourself approved, right? But they have no preparation. That just blows me away. Just things always first. This is the first time we've seen this. This is the first time we've seen this. This is the first time we've seen this. And what do they have to rely upon? Can't be themselves. They don't have any of those things, but what they do have, they freely give. Freedom in Christ, they have that. The gospel message, they give that. Joy in the Lord. They have the most profound message mankind has ever heard. And they give that freely. They have the sweetest unity and they share that freely. And they have this warmest fire. And everyone that becomes a part of this church is a part of that. Again, one of the perfecting effects or purifying effects of persecution is it ignites the church. It ignites them to praise. There is purity in their praise when they begin with this, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and earth and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It just purifies their praise. They are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It just pours out of them. It just flows out of them. They rejoice in praise. O Lord. That's what my translation says. The King James has it. Lord, Thou art God. Some translations. Ah, Sovereign Lord. Or Sovereign God. It's You who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They recite back to God words He Himself had given to Moses to share with the people in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Words that remind everyone who's in control. It reminds them. Their Creator, God. It is You who has made us. And that which He created is under His jurisdiction. He rules and He is able to overrule over all His creation. It, my point is, it's not possible to dethrone God. It is impossible to dethrone God. They have stood before this court, but they're going to appeal to the high court. They're going to go all the way to the throne room of God. They've stood before this powerful court, 70 men plus one, 71 if they're all there. That's the Sanhedrin. I think I've said this a couple of years ago. I'm just reminded of it. When you get pulled over by a policeman, maybe not all of you do, but I bet you a majority of you get a little nervous, right? There's the authority coming, even if your seatbelt's on and you think I've done everything fine, that maybe your heart rate goes up a little bit. One authority. Imagine 71. They appeal to the highest court. The rulers of the people, they sat in judgment, but God is on His throne. God is on His throne. This reminds me of Job chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41, where God says to Job, hey, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to paraphrase here. Brace yourself like a man, bub, and I'm going to tell you what's what. Where were you when I set the earth on its foundations? And He just launches into those chapters where He just lets Job know. 
who He is. He's in control. He rules. And He overrules. So they're ignited to praise with this thought that God is ruler of all. And they're rejoicing in truth. They're also on fire through a recognition of the outworking of God's truth. Verse 25, Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, and then they're going to quote some things from Psalm 2 here. I love Psalm 2. I always have since the first time I read it. I love Psalm 2. But this event has set this church on fire for God. And one of the purifying effects of this persecution is they are marinated in the truth of God's word. They're just marinating in it. You know what marinating is? You put, I don't know how to do it very well, but I know what it is, right? You put a bunch of sauce on some meat and you put it in the fridge overnight or something. They are marinated in God's truth. The truths of Scripture have come alive for them. How exciting it is Exciting it was for me when I was a new believer and the truths of Scripture were just coming alive for me like that, right? And when you, when a new believer comes into a body of believers and they're just excited about everything, right? Everything they read, they just can't get enough. The truth of God's Word is fundamental to their unity. Belief in the truth is fundamental to their unity. The church is victorious through persecution as it rejoices in the truth. Jesus says in John, again, John 17, 17, sanctify them in your, in the truth. But I wrote it down. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. And this has been the effect of this persecution. It has sanctified them in the truth. They acknowledge the source of Scripture in verse 25, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, in other words, David penned it, but it was the Holy Spirit that was the author, right? The source of Scripture is God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. They acknowledge the source of Scripture. They also apprehend the veracity of Scripture or the accuracy, accuracy of prophetic truth. They're quoting Psalm 2, which speaks of King's, King David's, I believe it does, speaks of King David's throne being established and the opposition to that throne establishment a thousand, more than a thousand years earlier. But here it's King Jesus, the Messiah, and the opposition to His throne and its establishment. We learn that Psalm 2 was really speaking about and that's what they're saying. David wrote this long ago through the Holy Spirit. What he was saying, what we recognize is this was speaking of Jesus. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Why do they bother with that? God is in, in, enthroned in heaven. They're not going to conquer him. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ or against his anointed one. And it goes on to say in Psalm 2, let us throw off their fetters. In other words, yeah, God's got things He's telling us, but let's just chuck that aside. And then it goes on to say, God laughs at them and scoffs at them from heaven. And then it can... Someone's locked in the bathroom door. Some, <laughs> I bet we had to record that. And then it closes with, it closes with, in one translation, kiss the son lest he be angry and destroy you in his way. Kiss the Son. Cleave to the Son. Bind yourself to Him. And, and the rulers and, and the Gentiles and these ones that are, against the, that are against the Lord and against His anointed, it's all futile. It's not going to amount in anything for them. It's going to amount in nothing. And they recognize that that's what took place when they crucified Jesus. They attest to and rejoice in the fulfillment of Scripture. God predetermined what occurred. The cross was never plan B. That would have to be a message all on its own, wouldn't it? The cross was never plan B. The cross was always plan A. They put 
Jesus to death, but even in death he is victorious because it was impossible for death to hold him. He is victorious even over death. And they were teaching, Peter and John were teaching, that in Jesus there is this resurrection from the dead. Now that's something to ignite the church, right? This life isn't all there is. There's a life in the world to come. And there's a resurrected body. There's an inheritance we're waiting for, right? And there's a resurrected body. And, 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 the, and the pains and the joint pains and the aches and the sorrows and the, other, the emotional pains, that's going to be gone. That's something to ignite the church, isn't it? This isn't all there is. The struggles that we have in this life isn't the end of it all. This is a blip on the radar screen compared to eternity. This is a blip. This is a moment in time compared to an eternity with Christ. A moment in time. That's something that ought to ignite the church, and it does. I think it ignites this church. This isn't everything there is. Third point, the third purifying effect of persecution is it invites the church to pray more effectively. It invites the church to pray more effectively. Or it invokes them, it invokes in them a need for prayer. It invokes in them a need for prayer. Persecution invokes prayer. The early church became, was becoming known as a people of prayer. We saw that in... Um, they're becoming known to us as that. We saw that in Acts 1.14. Before, before the day of Pentecost, they're gathered together in the upper room. These, this is when there were still only 120 of them. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And then in Acts 2.46, or 2.42, excuse me, they were continually devoting themselves to a few things there the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's what they were devoted to. This church is being marked by prayer, is, is marked by prayer. They're devoted to a few things, and one of them is prayer. And now persecution comes, and where do they turn? They turn to God in prayer. And this prayer actually begins back in verse 24, but it's the petition of prayer that I want to focus on, really. But they begin with praise. That's part of their prayer. The petition starts in verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence or with all boldness while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. The purifying effect that persecution has on the church. The third one I wanted to point to was it invokes in them, it invokes in the church a need for prayer. It invites the church to pray. They're praying from a greater realization of their need, right? They've been a praying church. They've been a praying body. Now they have this greater realization. Lord, we need you. And now, Lord, it starts out in verse 29. And now, Lord, I can see in that their determination to move forward, to advance. We don't see the church defeated and retreated, but united, ignited, and so invited to persecution to pray. And they pray to God. They lift up their voices to God. Seeing persecution and the threat of it is an invitation or an invocation, you might say, to pray. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. They praise God for His sovereignty and His predetermined plan of redemption. That includes His Son's suffering at the hands of those men they named. And some of those men are some of the men they stood before themselves. Peter and John stood before themselves. And they've come to recognize they stand in great need. They have a greater realization of their dependence on God. They say, take note of their threats. They say that to God. 
I see in that that they're not putting their heads in the sand and pretending that the threat is not real. The threat's very real. And they know it. There's force behind it. And they go to the place they should go to. They don't, they don't revolt. They don't go holding up picket signs. They don't uh, start some political movement. They go to God in prayer. That's what they do. They're also more aware of their own spiritual inadequacy. Again, their dependence on God. This is a purifying effect of persecution. It's a, it is a blessing for them to be aware of their need. It's a blessing for me to be aware of my need. Have you, have you prayed that? I'm sure you have, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help me to know what my need is. Help me to know where I fall short. And there's this request, this God-honoring request request for the provision of God in 29 and 30. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Grant that we will not retreat. They are praying according to their need. They recognize in their own hearts there would be a possibility of retreat. And then there's the response in verse 31. We're getting close to the close, you guys. And the response shakes their world, literally. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. Imagine if we met here on a Wednesday night and we were praying. And we were all in corporate prayer. There's a wonderful thing that happens. It doesn't happen exactly the same way every time, but sometimes it feels like everyone is in tune in the same spirit, in the same way, at the same time, and it is beautiful. And it shakes you up in a really good way. This is a literally shaking of the literal shaking of the place that they are praying in. And the response to their prayer is yes. The answer is yes. They're given what they have asked for. Recently listened to a sermon by Adrian Rogers who said something like this, the biggest abuse of prayer is not asking for the wrong thing. That's bad enough. This is not a quote, by the way. This is my transliteration of what I remember hearing. So the biggest abuse of prayer is not the asking for wrong things. That's bad enough, but failing to ask at all. Failing to ask at all. Guilty, been there. Failing to ask at all. Scripture tells us you have not because you ask not. We ought to ask. We ought to pray continually. We ought to be marked by prayer. Well, how does this apply to us? That's where we're going to close. We're not under this type of persecution here. We're not. At least not yet. But we do have the same enemy. I asked the question at the beginning, where do you go when you have a bad day? Scripture tells us that Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We are not under this kind of a persecution, but maybe Satan has just changed his tactics. That's all. He's just changed his tactics. In fact, I'm sure that's the case. We're not dragged before the authorities. But we can be easily distracted from the pure and simple devotion to Christ. Our thoughts can be distorted by every wind of doctrine. We can be disillusioned or disappointed by disillusioned or disappointed rather by false expectations. All that is opposition. All that is opposition. And all that opposition, the source of that isn't from God. So 
So that kind of opposition should purify our unity. It should cause us to join together and report all. And to report all. Just, just to speak to each other. This is what's going on in my life. This is what I'm struggling with. This is the opposition I'm facing. Spiritual opposition. This is how I've been praying to God to give me some freedom from X, Y, or Z. We should have a mutual interest in one another with regard to those things. And out of that, out of that, I think would come a unity of joy, right? This unity of joy would come out of that. This kind of opposition that we face, this distraction from the pure and simple devotion to Christ, distortions by every wind of doctrine, disillusionments and disappointments by false expectations, should ignite us to praise God. Should ignite us to praise God and recognize and have a recognition of the truths of Scripture. Scripture tells us whoever wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're not persecuted like we saw in that video. We're not persecuted like we see Peter and John being persecuted here and like we're going to see as the persecution ramps up. We're not persecuted like that yet. But we face opposition. We have the same enemy. Maybe he's just changed his tactics. And this kind of opposition should invoke us, should invoke in us rather, a need for prayer. We are people who stand in great need. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have it all together. Not a single one of us. And we know it. And it's okay. Because we know who does, right? We know who's in control. We know who sits on the throne. Where do you go when you've had a bad day? Are you purified through it? Let's pray for each other that we are, okay? Let's lift each other up this week and pray that we are purified through the oppositions that we do face. It's easy to pray for someone 8,000 miles away we've never met. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's hard to remember to do that. I don't know. Maybe it's not easy to pray at all. I don't know what I'm saying there. We ought to be lifting up each other up in prayer. That's what I'm trying to say. We've got to close here. We have communion. And Rick and some help distribute that. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for your, your people. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for the love that we can experience amongst one another. Thank you for the encouragement it is just meeting together. Thank you for how, as we see one another grow, it just excites us. It unites us. It ignites us. And it ought to invite us into prayer. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.